Good. Okay. Richard Pryor's here tonight. I think Richard Pryor is probably the funniest, funniest man. Uh, it would embarrass him for me to say this while he was sitting here. I know him, but I think he's one of the true geniuses working comedy today. He's not only thinks funny, he's a skilled comedy actor, and he's got a great string of movies out in recent years, and now he's co-starring in Superman 3. Richard Pryor! <laughs> Was funny, man. That, that was, was all right, huh? Yeah, I like that. Coming from you, that. okay. If you thought that was funny, I'll buy that. How you doing? I'm great. I feel wonderful. Yeah, you're looking good. Thank you very much. Yeah. So happy to be here, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, Nick? Good. Yeah. good. See, I, I don't know what's going on, though. Yeah. I don't. I, I, I'm at home, you know, and, and, and I've been here now about six months. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I haven't been back to Hawaii. I'm going next week, but I've been here and I watch television here. I don't watch in Hawaii much. And I turn on TV and I watch and I go, hmm, that's, that's good. <laughs> and I, I don't understand. I don't get it. I mean, I see, I see the President Reagan on TV talking and I don't get angry or nothing. Most people be angry. I, I just go, hmm. <laughs> I wonder who lets him on. <laughs> you know, I, I say to myself, I said, if this man was standing on the street corner talking like he's talking, you'd go, excuse me. Because <laughs> they, they're, talking, they, they, they're talking about, now they're talking about something real dangerous. They're talking about nuclear missiles. Yeah. I mean, they're talking about messing up all our Sundays. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, if you don't have that uniform on, you're going to be a statue. <laughs> Do you ever see that stuff that the, uh, the soldiers have it? You know, them suits. And I don't have one in my closet. Yeah. There's a radiation suit, you mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean, no, if I you don't... ain't got one of those... <laughs> Pigeon park time, I mean. You know, and I'm not mad at no Russians at all. I want the Russians to know. Richard Pryor, I'm not mad at y'all. <laughs> Nothing personal. No. even know no Russians. <laughs> you know, if I walk down the street, if he don't have on that hat, I ain't gonna know him. That's right. <laughs> hey, George, how you doing? <laughs> oh, I gotta tell you something. I was watching the other night. I had never seen some kind of hero, that uh -huh. picture you did. Uh -huh. I saw it on cable the other night. You had me laughing so hard, I almost wanted to call you and tell you. I was hysterical. Yeah. He comes back from the war, <laughs> from the Vietnamese War. You find out that your wife has been see, seeing another guy. Yes. They take all your money and they've spent it. Yes. You find out your mother is in a convalescent home. Yes. <laughs> and you got a scene where you go to the psychiatrist. And the, you're sitting there. The psychiatrist says, now, we don't want to push psychiatry on anybody if we don't think you need it. He says, now, do you think you have any major problems? <laughs> well, he sat there and didn't say a word and started to giggle. You just, it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Oh, said, do you have any major problems? Mm -hmm. just went, <laughs> 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 and then the doctor, you just stood there and laughed for two minutes. Yeah. God, it was a funny scene. Thank you very much. I yeah. wish more people had seen it. <laughs> it was a wonderful picture. It was wonderful. That was one of the best scenes I've ever seen. Yeah, I had fun doing that movie. Yeah. Are you still, uh, still straight now? Yeah, yeah, still, I haven't had, uh, Johnny says that, I think he's talking, you're talking about drugs and liquor, yeah, right? liquor, yeah. Good, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't even get into the other. Yeah. Thank you.
Welcome back to the Professor Penn Podcast. David Penn here. It's episode 77, Martyrs and Icons. Today is the 27th of November. This is going to go up on the 28th of November. And uh, we started out with uh, Richard Pryor on The Tonight Show. So I have two questions. Do you know Richard Pryor? Great. My producer, Elia, who's 23, 24, knows not Richard Pryor. Great. How about The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? Does that ring a bell? Rings a bell. He's not talking, but he doesn't know Richard Pryor, which I find that's why I'm doing this. <laughs> Gives me some motivation for today's podcast. You know, before I get into all the boilerplate, Richard Pryor, I mean Richard Pryor, let me set the scene for you. That's The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. A more uni-party mainstream kind of a thing one could not find. I mean, it was the, the center of the target. We all got together. Now, this was before fragmentation. We didn't have 4,000 choices of media daily or whatever the number is, which is mind-boggling. You had a couple of television stations. Good luck to you. I mean, nobody had cable. We didn't have, there was no smartphones. I mean, I, let me wake you up on this. No phones. We were using rotary phones. This was 1983. This was the era of the rotary phone. They might have started the touchstone phone. I can't remember when the date was, but we used to actually stick our finger in a hole and it was analog, right? But everybody, and when I say everybody, not everybody, because when you say everybody and always and, this is a cognitive distortion. We want to stay away from distortions. And I know it's not everybody because my mother, the communist, refused to let me watch Johnny Carson because it was presenting an image of America as a warm, friendly, and powerful place where everybody got together, and she viewed that as a scam. But actually, actually, as a young man in the early 1980s, because I was fully functional, in fact, I owned a business and I was well down the road to being who I am today. We watched The Tonight Show. Um, there was a great sense of harmony in the country at that minute. Now, President Reagan was well on, was down his path to undermine that because, you know, harmony, whoa, if everybody's getting along, that puts a lot of pressure on the leaders. When we're all hating each other, it works a lot better for them, not for us. And uh, But Pryor was this magnificent figure, and uh, we're going to delve into this. Today's episode is Martyrs and Icons. We've talked about the four martyrs, John Kennedy, assassinated, Malcolm X, assassinated, Martin Luther King, assassinated, and Bobby Kennedy, assassinated, the four martyrs. And these four martyrs had a big impact, the martyrdom of these four leaders, had a big impact on the boomer generation and then, of course, subsequent generations. As it's written, the sins of the fathers are visited upon the sons, even to the third and fourth generation. So this is affecting everyone in the country, whether we know it or not. And as I was in the last episode trying to talk about why do I think the way I think? Why are we the way we are? How do we get here? So I wanted to Take a little time going back, looking at some of these great figures because they're getting lost. You know, we're going to talk about icons. 
three icons, an icon, a hero, a cultural hero, the three icons, Richard Pryor, James Brown, Muhammad Ali. And at the time, you know, this was supposed to be black icons. It was black, but, you know, this was a scam because I was a young man, and these people were icons to me. They were heroes to me, and they were heroes to many in my generation, and they changed human behavior. They changed human culture, and we want to know how we got to where we're at and what happened, so we're going we're gonna to go back over some of this. Want to thank Free People Radio, Truth Seeking Media. Nothing could be more important than truth seeking, not free people. Free people is our meditation for doing it here, but truth seeking that's for everyone. And to the extent, to the extent that citizens do not seek the truth, we end up with half the military hardware robbed away. Because hey, if no one's looking for the truth then the criminals can get away with anything, right? PrecinctStrategy.com because we have to get involved or they'll steal everything. PrecinctStrategy.com. Go there, take a tutorial on how to get involved in the game of politics. And I say this every episode because this is a big part of what we're doing. We're not asking for people to paint a donkey or an elephant on their back. We're asking for people to spend one day a year, 24 hours a year, invested in their local neighborhoods and communities by getting involved in their local political parties, getting a vote in the party, becoming what's called a delegate, and in so doing, perhaps saving the republic and by extension saving the world from tyranny, which is descending upon us. We talked in the last uh, uh, episode about creation, the creation myth, Genesis. Now, all of the cultures that we're involved in have a creation myth. And we're in a moment where two cultural mountains are colliding with each other, or two storm fronts, uh, a cold front and a, a warm front. They're colliding, creating a tornado or a hurricane, a conflict. We've got the traditional, spiritually focused culture, what they call Judeo-Christianity in the West, which is an emphasis on Genesis and on God and on man's relationship to the eternal. And it's run into quite a competitor. That would be Marxism and the origin of the species a completely materialist understanding of human life and human history that's devoid of and, in fact, in opposition to a spiritual focus. Or as they say in that camp, religion is the opiate of the masses. The opiate. Well, okay, great. Apparently they've never met uh, God. That's okay. I feel sorry for these people. That's another reason why I'm doing the podcast. Because over time, maybe we can help some people find their way to truth, truth-seeking. So much going on. Um, I, I struggled with this last night. On the one hand, it was a holiday weekend. Now it's Tuesday night. I hope you're all well. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. 
we're not really back in the work groove. It's uh, about 7.30 in the morning here on Monday. And I'm not really back to work yet. And nobody's really going to get back to work until the middle of the afternoon. And I was thinking about what am I going to present because there's so much heavy news. Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, no, we're going to have one more episode tilted a little bit more to the entertaining and historical and a little bit less to the current events. But make no mistake about it. Current events are really moving at a breakneck, breakneck pace, and we're going to cover later in the week uh, Gert Wilders, uh, who's a, a Trump-like figure in the Netherlands, has been elected by the Dutch people as the top vote-getter, his party, and he'll have the opportunity to form a government there, and he has a very anti-immigration, anti-EU, anti-globalist group, and they've voted him in because if you remember, and we'll probably go over it again, the farmers, the the World Economic Forum was trying to close down farming there because that's a huge farm export country, and it's a small country, and they were impinging on the lifestyle of the farmers, and they you know, they voted for hey, nationalism. You globalists can go, you know, bite a hog in the ass. That's pretty much where they were coming from. We're going to deal with it. But this week we're going to start slow and get into some enjoyment and some history and where my thinking comes from. But I want to keep this to the center. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the worry. The weary. I'm worrying today. Forgive us, Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, our King, for we have willfully transgressed. For you for pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, O Lord, who is gracious and ever willing to forgive. Get a kick out of myself. I said, restoring strength to the worry. And I was driving in this morning, and for those of you who know Simon and Garfunkel, I was in my head singing, uh, Hello, darkness, my old friend because the worry is back upon me today, the anxiety, which is a measure of my own faithlessness. But we're, we're in a struggle here, and uh, we appreciate your support. FreePeopleRadio.com. The store is open. Some of you have started to buy the merchandise. We appreciate it. 
We ask for your support and thank you very much. Well, why not? We're living in a magic economy, so we need some some support. It's a magic economy. And before we get into the more entertaining part of tonight's episode, you know, you can't pass by BS at this cosmic kind of a level. So, I, you know, I ran across something over the weekend, and I wanted to share it with you because it, you know, why do I think the way I think? Well, you know, because we're being programmed to think a certain way. Ellie, could you play this Ratner on the economy piece, and we'll stop it when I can no longer take him. But we're going to get to your charts in a second. Uh, but there is something that is is so deeply fascinating about the state of the economy and America's perception of the economy, and just how much disinformation can actually move Americans. That they they stop it, please. It's the whole. See, you know, these people are getting dumb and clumsy because just before we're about to get a huge dose of disinformation from Morning Joe, the railhead of the New World Order, MSNBC, watch it. What they like to do is they like to blame others for what they're about to do themselves. So I'm going to preface this. This is not disinformation or misinformation. This is shining the light on the information in a way that creates a misinformed or a disinformed populace. Please continue. Hold, are you going to believe me or your lying eyes? They believe their lying eyes. Americans, front page of the New York Times, Americans say the economy is bad. Their spending begs to differ. A disconnect looms in the psyche of voters. We've been talking about this for a while, and the New York Times obviously stealing your idea uh, on charts, and, and we're, we're, we really need to talk to them about that. But they have charts showing just how well the economy is doing, and yet the disinformation uh, coming from certain news sources uh, driving those numbers way down because, of course— it up, please? You know, I can't help but to comment. The economy's doing so well. They're juicing the ball. The economy is a shambles without trillions of dollars of deficit spending, which the Congress authorized and which the Fed funds through selling bonds and just monetizing debt. I mean, just creating dollars out of thin air. So to say the economy is doing well when it's not well, it'd be like a guy who had, uh, you know, a heart attack. Uh, he's dying. Uh, he's dying. But they got him on, you know, all kinds of machines and drugs, and he's just sitting there laughing in bed while he's dying. That's our economy. We're sitting here laughing and having a good time while the economy's dying. Please continue. If you have Republicans who are making more money than they've ever made in their lives, uh, uh, and they're watching the certain news networks, they're going to tell pollsters and everybody else, oh, the economy's doing horribly, when in fact... About 80% of Americans say their situation's pretty good right now. Yeah, Joe, look, we've, we've talked about that before, and there's definitely a disconnect in the economy. People say their situations are good, but nonetheless, as you know, the uh, approval ratings for the handling of the economy, right track, wrong track numbers, looks out into the future about where they think things are going, are all pretty deeply pessimistic. But along the way, they're spending, they're spending money and actually doing better with inflation coming down, as I can show you here in the context of Thanksgiving and the holiday shopping. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see that. 
So let's take a look at the cost of a Thanksgiving this year. So uh, 72% of Americans, according to a recent survey. Stop it, please. This is a common trick in uh, economic circles. Take a look at that chart. You see where it starts on the left? And you see where the circle is? And now he's going to tell you life is better. Don't believe your lion eyes. Look at the difference between where we started on the chart and where we are today. It's tremendous inflation. But because inflation backed off just a bit, they're going to take credit. You know, you just, it leaves me almost speechless. The level that these people are willing to go to gaslight me and to just assume I'm stupid. Look at that. I mean, they've just put it right up there for you to look at. Look where you started. Look where we are. Oh, but it's better. Please continue. Thought the cost of Thanksgiving would actually be higher this year. In fact, the cost of Thanksgiving, according to the Farm Bureau, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is going to come down slightly. It's going to go from 64.05 last year to 61 dollars and 17 cents this year. That may sound low to those of us who live in cities, but that is the national average. Uh, now, in fairness, we did have a run-up in the kind of COVID era. Uh, it was down as low as 49 dollars, but still, this is good news. Probably uh, to the point, to your point a surprise to Americans who think prices are just going up. Another way to look at this is in terms of how much work you have to do to pay for that $61.17 Thanksgiving. And the answer is less work than any year in modern history except for the three around COVID. It took two hours and 40 minutes to pay for th of work to pay for Thanksgiving back here. We're down to two hours and six minutes at the moment. Mm -hmm. So again, relative to what people are making, Thanksgiving is getting less expensive. Okay, so you, you are able to buy the meal, maybe. But then you still got to get there if you're visiting your family. Um, what are you finding in terms of travel costs? So that's another pleasant surprise people will have, which is the travel costs have come down a lot. Obviously, gasoline spiked, very uh, upsetting to Americans, most of whom do drive somewhere or other. But gas has come down, 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 and now gas is 5% lower than it was a year ago. And again, relative to wages, which is this gray line, it's essentially unchanged. And I would also say, if you look at gas prices over the last 40 years and adjusted for inflation, they're only about average now. I know that may surprise Americans, but that's true. Even better news, if you are flying to grandma's house, it is actually going to be cheaper in actual terms than it was a year ago. Airfares are now below where they were back in November of 19. And so that is good news for travelers as well. Okay, there, uh, are, there are a few people who've gotten their Christmas shopping done already. You Have you? Of, are you one of them? Mika? I do. I always get it done before Thanksgiving. Is that weird? It's really impressive. Uh, yeah, no, it's no, a, it's a, yeah, a little bit. I need to get it done. Okay. So, um, but are we going to see like massive, massive costs at Christmas when you're trying to buy presents, clothes, uh, gift certificates, or is there going to be some respite for shoppers during the holidays? Yes, Mika. Uh, again, good news on prices. The prices okay, for a Okay, stop. Can't take any more of this. We're permanently stopping these people. There's a scam here. A scam of galactic proportions, kind of like robbing all the weapons. Uh, this is our leadership, our media leadership, Morning Joe. I mean, this is the real head. And what are they saying? They're saying, oh, my turkey's less expensive. Isn't that great? Oh, 
My airfare is less expensive. Oh, my presents are going to be less expensive. Me, 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 me. Everything's about me. Boy, I'll tell you, I'm just doing great. You know, this is the classic misdirection play. These people are very intelligent and they're very systematically directing the attention of their viewership to themselves because the story is, hey, it's all about me. Well, guess what? It's not all about me. It's about us. We're Americans living in a country called the United States of America. And our economy is degrading and falling apart at a very high rate of speed because of government spending and government overreach. What they're talking about is don't care about what's coming in the future. Don't care about what's happening with the finances of the country. Don't care about politics. Go buy a turkey. Invite some of your friends to fly in. Get drunk. And then go spend a bunch of money on meaningless presents that will be forgotten almost as soon as they're given as gifts. Be self-interested. Be self-absorbed. Be a narcissist. Avoid political participation or the search for truth. Avoid getting involved. Anything but that. Anything but getting involved for one day a year. So their entire motif is to focus me, the viewer, on how great I'm doing, which I'm not doing great. They can't fool me. So stop, Joe. Don't BS me. Let's talk just a little bit about what's really going on. Play this piece, Financing the Government Debt. Oh, this is a great one. One of the big developments in U.S. fiscal policy is a direct result of elevated interest rates, the rapid rise in the cost of financing the U.S. government's debt. Interest expense for the U.S. federal budget in fiscal year 2019 was $885 billion before the massive federal spending to cushion the economy from the worst of the pandemic. Interest expense as of Q1 2023 was running at an annual rate of $1.2 trillion. Since the long-term Treasury bond yields are currently lower than short-term Treasury bill rates, the U.S. Treasury may decide to increase the share of debt issued in 10, 20, or 30-year securities. Even so, interest expense will only go higher as low-rate debt securities mature and are refinanced with much higher-rate debt securities. Our conclusion is that the U.S. economy is going to have to adapt to an era of restricted monetary policy accompanied by an era of highly constrained fiscal policy because the interest on the U.S. federal debt is eating up a bigger slice of the available spending. That's your economy. Okay, now, that's the truth. That's the truth. The interest on our debt is now $1.2 trillion annually. Put it in some context, the country of Mexico, their entire country's output is about $1.8 trillion. So we are spending, we the people, we are paying $1.2 trillion in interest. Who's getting the interest? You know, the interest is the profit. You know, the money gets lent out in the form of securities. Or in the case of the Federal Reserve, sometimes they just monetize the debt and create the money out of thin air and have a paper transaction 
and then they collect interest on air. I mean, you know, the scam here is so mind-boggling. Well, let's just put it on a par with. Can you play this last piece? We're going to play this again just because it goes hand in hand. Pentagon fails the audit, please. Pentagon fails the audit. There you go. Another year gone by, another Pentagon audit failed. The Defense Department's taking a sizable chunk of your paycheck. However, it's unable to prove how it's actually spending those tax dollars. Tom Dempsey explains what auditors found or didn't find in its annual evaluation of the Pentagon's budget. Tom, you would think this much money, most Americans, we can't do anything about it, but we, sh we are demanding answers. A lot of money we're talking about here, Adrian. For the sixth year in a row now and counting, the Pentagon has failed its yearly audit. Look, the Department of Defense has around $4 trillion in assets. We're talking about weapons and other supplies. But this audit report found that around half of those assets can't be accounted for. Uh, federal government agencies face yearly audit. Thank you. That gets the point across. Half of those assets cannot be accounted for. So they know. It's $4 trillion assets, $2 trillion disappeared. Oh, and there's another trillion of interest being paid on the debt. We're not going to get down to the local governments where everything's getting robbed because everything's getting robbed. We're getting robbed. We're paying taxes. It's going to pay interest on debt, which is money that was poorly spent. The money that is spent, half of it's getting the the hardware that's being purchased with the money that's spent, half of it's getting robbed. You know, Professor Penn has seen a lot of things in his life, including criminality, and this is starting to look to me like a really first-class con meant to take every dollar away from me. Everything's looking like the long con. The long con. I'm getting con. I don't like it. And, of course, if you go back and look at that, the newscaster, she was nice enough to say there's nothing I can do about it. No, that's a scam. That's more programming. There's a lot I can do about it, and I'm doing it. I am a member of the Minnesota Republican Party. I am a delegate, and I'm hanging around with people I don't like to try to change this. And that's the problem with politics. you got to hang around with people you don't like until all the American citizens get involved and we bring sacred honor back to politics. And then it'll be really fun to hang around with people in politics. But right now, politics is fenced off by assholes, and we just have to put up with it to try to make some progress and get these people dislodged, replaced, repurposed, just kind of out of the picture, and get in some American citizens that care about this country. The magic economy. Interest paid on air. That's a profit for somebody, and what we do spend, half of it's getting robbed. The magic economy, magic, as in M-A-G-I-K, that kind of magic, the kind of magic that has a religious overtone to it. I don't want to get too serious. Remember, it's close to the holiday. I'm trying to take it easy. So I want to talk about uh, our icons. Have a little fun. Have a little fun because there's plenty of time to be serious. The serious stuff's not going to go away. And I want to know why it is I think the way I think. And I don't want these icons to get lost. Because like my young producer, 
doesn't know. Well, he just doesn't know who Richard Pryor is, so that's crazy. Three icons. Richard Pryor, that's comedy and acting. James Brown, that's music. And Muhammad Ali, that's just boxing and a whole lot more. So these, these are three black men, and we thought of them as black at the time. I think of them now, in hindsight, they're Americans providing me a heroic depiction of masculinity, almost like the Wizard of Oz, right? Ali had great courage. You know, courage, just courage. Each one of these men embodied courage and intelligence and great feeling. They were men. They were black men. Great. But they were an icon for our whole country. And the evidence is there's Richard Pryor on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. You can't get any more mainstream than that. And you can't get any more radical than Richard Pryor, as we're going to see down the road here a little bit. And then you had Ali, who was a black Muslim. And I want you to listen to his rhetoric now. And this is on the Dick Cavett's show which was kind of a highbrow tonight show, we're talking about mainstream media. Could you just play this piece, Ali on Cavett, please? Mohammed, what do you do these days now? It seems the, I sometimes wonder what you're doing. You know, it's really strange. I'm actually more busy now than I was uh, boxing because at the time I was boxing, I had to go and train him for like three months before a fight. And like immediately after a fight, I was signing for another one, and I was like on the streets for like three weeks, and then I was back in training. And I fought as much as three and four times a year. And training three months each fight, I was mostly in camp. Mm -hmm. But I'm more busy now than I was, more active in the ring. Uh, for an example, I was in Pittsburgh uh, yesterday and toured about three black high schools in one day, encouraging the youth. A lot of gang wars are going on. They're shooting each other and sniping at each other on the streets. and. The principals uh, mentioned that with the things that I have done and sacrifices I have made, I'm about one of the few people that they might listen to. So I went, and they did listen, and a couple of the gangs got together, and we had a little secret meeting, and they shook each other's hand and said they're going to try to stop fighting and shooting. A lot of them are taking dope, and a lot of the girls are going into prostitution. And we went to the schools, we talked with the various groups, and we had a good time. And uh, yeah. I'm on a college tour also, and my agent, uh, Richard Fulton here in New York, says that look like we're going to be booked for another two years in the colleges. And I'm also franchising about 500 restaurants called Champ Burgers. We have five of them in the Miami area. Champ Burgers? Champ Burgers, right. And we're negotiating on about 10 more buildings in Georgia, and we're coming up here and all over the country. And also, Random House will be coming out soon with my life autobiography, about four more months. So I stay pretty busy. Mm. That's pretty good. Is there any, any, how do you stand now with um, the possibility of going to jail? Oh, I don't know. I'm just waiting any day now. Do you think about <laughs> Do you think about that, though? Do you ever think what you'll do if you Well, yes, you, you think about it at nights when you're in the bed. You think about, you know, if I went this way, what could have happened if I went this way? And I've figured it all out. Uh, yeah. No people gain freedom until some have to die, some lose their wealth, some give up money. And like uh, I would say, the white race, when a 
uh, young people first got here, they didn't have these cameras and televisions and jet airplanes and air conditions and Howard Johnson's and Holiday Inns and Americana and Hilton hotels. They had to fight the Indians, watch their daughters raped and scabbed. Uh, uh, took six months to go from here to Los Angeles. Now you can do it in three and a half hours. But nevertheless, they kept fighting and cutting down the trees. And they didn't see this, but they made a way for the present whites to rule. And the Japanese in World War II, they had these flights called suicide missions. They knew they would die, but they ran that plane, right? His life meant nothing when it came to the freedom of his daughter, his son, the future of his nation. And I would say like uh, the astronauts, three white astronauts almost got stranded in space and their wives were waiting and the Wait children were worried because they might, they, they could have uh, been out there now still in orbit. Yeah. But for the progress of uh, white American space, eight astronauts died on the ground and uh, three almost not got back. But whenever people want to really make progress, some have to sacrifice a lot. And I like to say, um, um, uh, white America right now is spending $30 million a day in Asia. Black and white boys are dying unjustly for nothing just to free somebody else. So why should I worry about going to little old jail to free my poor people who's been catching hell here for 400 years? It's kind of hard to put a Are you black, asking me kinda, for an answer to that? It's kind of hard to put a black man uh, or any black person in this country in jail because if you ask the average one, we're already in jail. You know, we've been here in jail 400 years. How does the, the subject changed so many times I've in that long sentence big, that I really, I'm going to talk for a second now, um, <laughs> that I really don't know how that connects with uh, Howard Johnson's and everything, but. Uh, uh, it's a terrific, uh, long uh, harangue there that you, you did. Uh, do you feel bitter toward the entire white race? Do you think there's something about whiteness that is uh, evil? No, sir. No, sir. Uh, whatever white people do, as far as evil or as far as uh, mistreatment, it's just the nature of the uh, white race to be this way if we check history. Do you think it there's might be human been, nature? Yes, just human nature to kill. If white ah, people, human nature, I watch television, if there's not a movie of white people shooting white people in shootouts and cowboy pictures, they're shooting Indians. If they're not shooting Indians, they're shooting Negroes. If they're not doing that, they're shooting reindeers or elephants or killing something. Just got to shoot. The system is built on war. Now, let and me ask you this. <laughs> Do you think if it had happened the other way around for some reason in, in uh, what's the word, evolution, if the genes and the pigments had happened to work some other way, and if the nation of Africa, if the continent of Africa had developed the kind of civilization that ours has, um, and uh, is it possible that what I'm trying to say is, is there something intrinsically, uh, I know this is, this is part of the, uh, of the Muslim point, I assume, the black Muslim point, uh, that, that there is something intrinsically I'm just talking about history. aggressive I'm, about white nature that there I'm isn't about, about black. No religious point. What I'm telling you is in history books, in your own books about this. I have a book called A Hundred oh, Years. Oh sure, of I know. All, all there is. So I'm not bringing up religion or nothing. This is just a fact that the world knows, you know. But I would say that uh, the, just the nature, from what I see of darker people, is peace. I say like the Japanese uh, seem to be a peaceful people until somebody else came over. Uh, dictating and trying to rule them. The Hawaiians, uh, they'd be on the beach doing their little dance. The Indian was building his uh, uh, 
whatever TP or whatever you call it, the African was somewhere doing his little dance. These people have never tried to go to other planets or slay and slave other people or take over countries. This Actually, is that isn't true. Uh, if, you, if you took, for example, uh, no, let, let me just, uh, I, I don't want to get in an argument with you, but uh, Tahiti, for example, is always used as an example of the paradise that the white man came and destroyed. But if you look into the history of uh, when, uh, uh, I'm, I'm an expert because I just read a book about it, Captain Cook, but um, that supposedly peaceful paradise where people did nothing but pluck breadfruit off the trees and make love and um, had no disease until the white men got there, actually uh, had a number of unpleasant aspects to it, like the fact that they strangled infants at birth uh, to keep the population down, that there were live human sacrifices. So I really... I know that there have well, been outrageous injustices against the black people I'm in this country, about, but it doesn't really get us very far to talk about something as if the white man were some sort of uh, intrinsic devil uh, that no That's other the race truth. is. You are right. What you said was the truth. The thing that you all have done to us is worse than the devil you told us about underground. How would you like it if I were to lead into a commercial now? Mm, whatever you want to say, but when you say After devil, this message right. from our local stations, will return. Oh, that's uh, that's quite uh, quite shocking. That dialogue right there on primetime television with Dick Cavett. I mean, this was some very open dialogue, and the one I like the best, the one that I resonate the best with. This whole system's based on war. What Muhammad Ali was trying to articulate was that our system, and he was a, really didn't say it was the British the crown model of slavery, drugs, and piracy, didn't articulate it well. Well, that's what's great about intellectual research and pursuit of truth. We become more succinct in our understanding of the issues and how to describe them to each other. We're using models. The models are imperfect. It's imperfect. But it does speak to a system that's based on slavery and drugs and piracy. And here we are. This is a long time ago. And Muhammad Ali was this phenomenal athlete, just the greatest of all time. And what's interesting about this is many boxers and uh, people that pursue the martial way today, when they go back, they look at the history. They want some models of how to train themselves. And Muhammad Ali keeps coming up as the master model for movement and for tenacity, for training, for endurance and patience, and of blending a high level of truth-seeking with movement. And that was a powerful, powerful combination. And Muhammad Ali laid down a marker of masculinity. He's an icon of masculinity in America. And let's just give him a tribute piece. Let's just take a little look at uh, what drew our attention to him. Well, he told me to bet my life that you wouldn't go three rounds. Well, if you want to lose your money, then bet on Sunday. Oh, uh, may I ask you Because this? I'll never lose a fight. It's impossible, tell him. It's impossible. You've never lost a fight in your life. That's any of my fans when the last time they lost. I'm too fast. Camping from I'm the, the king. Going to camp. Going to camp from the crib. Ah. Yeah, you could be the greatest. You can be the best. You can be the king Kong banging on your chest. You could beat the world. You could beat the war. You could talk the guy go banging on his door. You 
I told you all that I was the greatest of all time. Thunder, listen, I told you today I'm still the greatest of all time. Never again defeat me. Never again say that I'm going to be defeated. Never again make me the underdog until I'm about 50 years old. Right. Then you might get me. I told you I'm the real champion. I told you I'm the champion of the world. All of you bow. Fantastic. Just fantastic. I was working out on Sunday in my special place where I do my special thing, and I was dancing around thinking about Muhammad Ali's footwork. That's the impact, and the impact is ongoing and forever. We might, we might not see it. We, not, we might not feel it. We might not know it's there, but that doesn't mean it's not very powerful in our culture. And that's why I'm sharing this. That's why I'm sharing this. We don't want to lose this. And we don't want to lose Richard Pryor. Now you're going to see Richard Pryor, young man. Okay, now Richard Pryor was the Muhammad Ali of comedy. Fearless. He was on the cutting edge of racial thought. And he made it into an art form, his expression thereof, his feelings, his thinking, his courage. And much like Muhammad Ali, he was accepted into the mainstream. He was not marginalized. So great was his artistry. 
I'm going to say watching comedians, there was nothing new in comedy between Richard Pryor and Dave Chappelle. Everything in between was a bunch of Richard Pryor wannabes. Let's take a look at the master model himself. A state penitentiary. It was something. Oh, you applauding for that? Arizona State Penitentiary, real popular. <laughs> oh man, it was strange because it's like 80% black people. And what's strange about that is that there are no black people in Arizona. <laughs> I'm not lying, they bust motherfuckers in. And I was up there, and I, I looked at all the brothers, and it made my heart ache. You know, it's all these beautiful black men in the joint. Goddamn, warriors should be out there helping the masses. And I, I felt that way. I was real naive, right? And six weeks I was up there, I talked to the brothers, you know, and I talked to them. And thank God we got penitentiaries. <laughs> I said, why did you kill everybody in the house? Because they was home. I'm going to say, <clears throat> for those of us who don't like swearing, we're not going to bleep out this swearing because Richard Pryor brought a street grittiness to comedy and made it available to the mass audience. Previously, not that many people got a good glimpse into what the street was like. Richard Pryor brought the streak to America, but with the kind of commentary and presentation that elevated it into an art form. So let us not put down the swearing. Let's listen to it as an art form. You noticed in this piece, this is a very timely piece. He says, a black man, he's saying, whoa, we need penitentiaries. Some of these people are crazy. That's very timely. And this is, I don't know, this is the early 80s. So you can see how far we've come in 40 years. Not very. Richard Pryor was also a trendsetter. He could say things and do things that changed the culture. And here's something else that he started, which to this day is of timeliness. Please continue. That's a word that's used to describe our own wretchedness. And we perpetuate it now because it's dead. That word's dead. We men and women, we come from, we come from the first people on the earth. <laughs> you know, the first people on the earth were black people. Because anthropologists, white anthropologists, so the white people go, that could be true, you know. You see, these, these issues, we haven't come very far. We need to get there now as Americans. Realize that we had a moment in the early 80s, late 70s, where we had a lot of racial reconciliation going on, which obviously pissed off some very powerful people, and they thought to themselves, wow, if this black-white schism heals, they might look at who caused it. That would be the slavery, drugs, and piracy people. They might come for reparations.
they might change the system that's based on war. So let's make sure these two groups hate each other. And they did it very systematically. We got a little time capsule here with three icons who are healing the country. Now we're going to get into some pure joy. A lot of swearing, but this is pure joy. My young producer, Elliot, is going to realize now he's missing something. Let's play this piece. And, and look at the acting, how great this acting is. Richard Pryor on the Mafia. The thing I might have ever done in my life was once I worked at a Mafia nightclub. Uh, in Youngstown, Ohio. I was 19. I was 19 years old, right? And I didn't know shit about the Mafia. Uh, my father was the baddest motherfucker I'd ever seen. So the Mafia didn't mean shit to me. I did not relate to the Mafia. <laughs> and I worked with this lady, Satin Doll. She was the star of the show. Beautiful black stripper, right? Because usually in those days, they had like, in, in clubs, they had a, a singer and a stripper and an MC. I was the MC. And she was the first black star I ever met. Satin Doll. Yeah, I was, because Duke Ellington had written a tune about her. You know, that's what she used to dance to and act. She was beautiful. She was 60 then. <laughs> oh, this bitch was fine, though, man. <laughs> I'm not lying. Lena Horne didn't have shit on her. And she was crying backstage, you know. I got to get to Buffalo. They won't pay me. I said, who won't pay you? Club owners won't. I said, oh, them motherfuckers going to pay me. <laughs> bet, bet. And I, now this is how ignorant I was. I had a cap pistol. <laughs> you know them blank starter pistols? I busted into the office with this motherfucker in my all right, give me the money, motherfucker. <laughs> Doing my best black shit, you know. <laughs> you know, that shit usually scare Whitey to death. <laughs> and these motherfuckers didn't do nothing. And I'm sure that those men are sitting in that room today laughing. Because <laughs> that's what this dude, he just started laughing. <laughs> This fucking kid, ah! Hey, wait a minute. Hey, Tony, come here. Wait a minute, Rich, do the gun again. Hey, Tony, come here. Stick up. Ah! This fucking kid, come here. Come here, you fucking kid. Ah. He's got a pair of goosies on him, ah! Fucking kid, come here, goddamn. They like to hug you and rub you. Come here, fucking and grab your face, you got a manoodle sitting there. This fucking kid got some caboose. Hey, manoodle. And they always say shit you don't understand. You know, like, hey, you want a little cuisine better win? Hey, Paolo, fix him a little manoodle salad. Put some struzzi on. I'll fry it up. They like fried foods. <laughs> fucking kid, I come in here. He come in, he had a gun, a fucking kid. Uh, New Japan in my gun. Pay everybody off, pay them off. It's all right, they're gonna have time. They paid everybody off, let everybody go, and kept me. <laughs> like a pet. <laughs> I fucking like this, you're this fucking <laughs> You got family? Well, you got family now. <laughs> Who is it? Call mine, tell him I call him back. Tell him it's a stick up. <laughs> And these motherfuckers start telling murder stories. Hey, you remember when Guzzi, hey, you remember when I made my fucking bones? Ah, me, I had to go away. It was Cleveland, right? 
fucking Teamster. Big mouth, hurt a lot of people, right? You know, ice picks my thing, Rich. So we're fucking at the drive down, me, Johnny Salami, <laughs> the Cabuzo brothers. They're on the funeral parlor. You carry, we bury. <laughs> Come here, you fucking kid. So we take this jerk off our bowling, you know, drive him around, get him a few drinks. Say, hey, let's get some bras, right? A little motel we had set up. Remember the Johnny? So we take him around. He gets kind of stoned, drops his glass. I say, now, I pop him with the fucking ice pick, right? <laughs> I'm popping this cocksucker blood, squirting every which way. I'm stabbing. He's, oh, God, don't kill me. Oh, fuck you, you guinea cocksucker. And the fucking ice pick breaks. Ah! I'm standing there with a fucking piece of wood in my hand. I said, Johnny Salami, what do I do? Johnny says, wait till it melts, asshole. Those were the good old days. What's the matter, Rich? You don't look so good. Hey, Spilo, give me a little Sinini for all. You got a way home, you want us to give you a ride? Ah! Don't go out with the mafia. Cause you can't buy them dinner. The motherfuckers like, they always like to take entertainers to dinner. That's good. And they That's take good. you to dinner. Thank you so much. Well, I see you had a smile on your face there, young man. Pretty good, right? Pretty good. Elliot's going to have to go do a little research on Richard Pryor. As a, and if you're in the audience and you haven't had the pleasure of spending time with Richard Pryor, please. His work is readily accessible. You don't have to look hard for it. And if you remember this, if you're in my cohort, boy, I remember seeing this movie in 1983, live on the Sunset Strip. I went with a friend of mine. I remember his name, too, Kerry Price, great friend of mine at the time. He had subsequently moved to another state. And... Uh, he was a cousin of mine, and we went, the two of us, and we were laughing out loud. I mean, can you imagine laughing? And the whole theater was cracking up. Everybody was cracking up, and it was a, you know, it was a, it was a mixed crowd. It was whites and blacks, and people were having a good time and enjoying each other's company. They were transfixed by the artistry. It brought us together. And that kind of um, very intelligent but very gritty realism brought something to the America that had never been there before. Let's just go with one more piece because Pryor could actually uh, get into the minds of, he could anthropomorphize animals. He could make things, he just had a way of describing things. Let's play this piece about the jungle. But in the jungle, if you see a rabbit, you get nervous because <laughs> the rabbit be looking at you and I'm like, Roll the window up, dear. <laughs> it's just a rabbit. Fuck you. Ain't no rabbit ever looked at me like that. And you see a lion in the jungle, that's what they look like, lions. Motherfucker be in the bush, dumb. Yeah, get your ass out the car. And bring that camera with you. Because we're going to eat all that shit. I saw three lions chase down like a, a, a cape buffalo. That's the baddest motherfucker on four legs, except for these bitches chasing it. 
And the lioness, they work, in, they work around like in teams, give signals, you know they can't talk them. And the buffalo saw one of them, right? And he tipped away from the rest of the herd. <laughs> what was it? And them two others jumped on his ass. <laughs> and the other buffalo said, hey, motherfucker didn't warn us, fuck him. And you know how the a buzzard circle in the movies? These motherfuckers drove up in a truck. <laughs> Talking about what it is. Cheetah, man, is the weirdest thing to see go chase something because you don't see nothing but dust. I saw two cheetah, and it looked like they were talking about jumping on some gazelle. There you go. You want to go after that herd? Say, nah, man, they too close, shit. <laughs> Why don't we give them another hundred yards? How's the wife and family, man? You know, it's going to be tourist season soon. <laughs> I got an arm last year. They're about far enough. You ready? <laughs> and the shit, the, like the gazelles and shit, hear them motherfuckers. They, don't, they be eating and hear them just start running. They don't even look. Run! And the motherfucker that can't hear is in trouble. What? Cheetah! Cheetah! What? Cheetah! What'd you say? It's your ass! I got ya! I saw a uh, one of them gazelles though make a move on a cheetah. It was embarrassing. The cheetah got pissed off too. Cause he's ready to get the gazelle and the gazelle said. And that motherfucker fell 400 yards trying to stop and got up. I'm gonna get you, motherfucker. Make me look bad. Yes, it was a tremendous opportunity for us to all come together. And wrapped into that beautiful acting was a constant refrain about the condition of the country, uh, the, the uh, challenges that the black community faced. And people looked up to Richard Pryor, and he suffered. You know, Muhammad Ali suffered through much of his life. He was a sufferer. He went from that high place, and then he died after many years of having Parkinson's disease, probably induced because he was hit so many times. Richard Pryor had a very difficult time with disease. These people gave all, and then they suffered on the back end. And, you know, a lot of this was going on on the main stage of America. I'm going to talk a little bit about now the musical icon, Jim Brown, but I want to set the stage again about what the Tonight Show was. Could you play this piece of the, you know, the boss, Frank Sinatra, here on the Tonight Show with Don Rickles? You are a powerhouse, and Frank, I love you. Did I listen? Can I tell a story about sure. what this man did to me once? You may have known or heard about this. It was a true story. This was a long time ago, long before Don got married. I was eating dinner in a restaurant in New York, and uh, uh, I was with, with some friends, and he came over to the table, and he said, Frank, do me a favor, will you? He said, I'm sitting with a very pretty girl, and uh, 
I'm trying to make out, you know, and he said, I told her I know you, and she really doesn't believe me. Would you stop by the table? I said, all right. I was just about finished. I was down to the espresso. And I finally, he went back, and I walked by the table, and I said, how are you, Don? Nice to see you. He said, can't you see I'm eating, Frank? What are you doing? <laughs> Well, okay, I'm going to ask, do you know who Don Rickles is? No. How about Frank Sinatra? He knows Frank Sinatra. We're going to get a mic on him someday soon. Okay. You know, we got a very mainstream kind of Protestant type in Johnny Carson. We got a great Italian icon, Frank Sinatra. We got Don Rickles, who was like the king of the Jewish comedians. This was a melting pot on The Tonight Show where Muhammad Ali would appear, where Richard Pryor would appear, as we saw, and where even James Brown, soul brother number one, another great icon, another great inspiration, would appear. And I'm going to tell you how much influence this show had on America. Play this next piece, Johnny, on the toilet paper. Of all the shortages we had, there's a gasoline shortage. You know what else is disappearing from the supermarket shelves? Toilet paper. Ha, 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 you can laugh now. There is an acute shortage of, of toilet paper in the good old United States. We've got to quit writing on it. But I want to tell you, it is serious. I just saw a commercial where... I know it's coming. Uh where Mrs. Olson comes in with a shopping bag and the housewife says, forget the coffee, just give me the shopping bag. I want to tell you... (laughs) Well, guess what? After that episode, I remember this because I was there. There was a real toilet paper shortage. I mean, Johnny Carson went out and told this joke. The next day, everybody went to the grocery store you couldn't buy toilet paper any place in the United States. It was a crisis, a crisis of the highest order because so many people tuned in. We Again, there was only a limited amount of media choices. The Tonight Show was where we all gathered. We all gathered to watch the Tonight Show, and we all gathered on Sunday to watch the NFL. That was America. It was a very optimistic time. It was before... This current regime had gained control. We were actually very close to World War II. We were in the post-war period. There was a lot more sacred honor. There was a lot more desire for people to do good one to another. And there was an attempt to heal the country from its problems, which had been pre-existing since before the Republic. And on this great show, which was the center of American culture, here comes James Brown, here comes Muhammad Ali, here comes Richard Pryor. These people were radical, radical. We'd never seen anything like this in the mainstream. Black people weren't allowed on the mainstream television. Chinese people were not allowed on the mainstream television. I mean, Bruce Lee tried to get on television with his own show. They said, now we we really can't have Chinese people on television. I mean, this is where we were at. The barriers were being breached. The boundaries were being broken. Healing was afoot. Let's take a look at James Brown on The Tonight Show. Would you welcome, please, James Brown. (laughs) 
So I'm going to set the stage for you here. At this moment in time, there were people in this country who had never met a black person, but they all watched Johnny Carson, and they tuned in to Johnny Carson, and they saw James Brown, and whoa, this was a mind blower. I mean, we look back on it, it doesn't seem that novel. But what Johnny Carson was doing is he was giving a stage to the radicals of the black liberation movement, the three icons, Pryor, Ali, Brown. And there was a whole other group of folks that were more politically scoped, yes. And, you know, like Malcolm X. I mean, Malcolm, I don't think, ever appeared on The Tonight Show. I'm going to go look it up. Maybe he did. The point is... The point is that this was a moment of great healing in our country. It was a moment of togetherness. It was a moment of congruency. It was a moment where we were proud to be American. I was there. I know what it felt like to be an American in the 70s and 80s. It was really a wonderful feeling. And, of course, we went to sleep being narcissists. We didn't protect the freedoms of the country. We didn't protect the institutions of the country. We didn't protect the tradition of the country. 
we went and pursued our own narcissistic desires, broke the seals, and here we are, it's uh, 2023, and we've gone to hell in a handbasket. And it's been the boomer generation that brought us there. You know, now the boomers, some of them are going to say, well, it was upstream of us. Well, maybe it was. But freedom takes maintenance, and we didn't do a good job maintaining the freedoms of the country, and now we have to, you know, bring things back into a healing state. And we have these great icons to lead us forward. They have redefined masculinity. They've redefined what it is to be an American. And as I said, at that time, they were defining what it was to be a black American. We didn't know that they were defining what it was to be American, to be American, such that we tear down these barriers and divisions that were artificially created and then the flames of hatred stoked because this is the British business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy. You can't rob the people unless they're not paying attention. I mean, if you're paying attention, it's hard to get robbed, right? They got everybody thinking about other things. First of all, themselves, narcissism, and then second off, hating each other. And while we're thinking about ourselves and hating each other, we've been living through 40 years of just intergalactic levels of theft and corruption. And now it's played itself out to the last chapter, and here we are, wondering, how is this story going to end? And it's really up to us, the American people. There's nobody to blame. There's no cavalry coming. You either vote or you don't. You either go and become a delegate or you don't. If you don't vote and you don't become a delegate and you wake up eight years from now and you're in prison, don't complain. Die quietly, okay? Because it's that important. Let's talk about some of these distractions. You know how they make people hate each other? How they make people hate each other so that they can rob us and control us. Can you please, this is under my rubric of Kazaria and other distractions. Can you play this piece, The Conspiracy Theory of World War II? Nazi anti-Semitism was, of course, a form of hatred and a form of disdain and contempt, but it was something else. It was an interpretation of ongoing events, and it was a worldview. And this worldview solved, or presumed to solve, rather, various riddles of world history. So the riddle of 1939 or rather, excuse me, the riddle of, of um, 1941 was the following. After Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, the Prime Minister of Britain, Churchill, announced on the, on the BBC that Britain would aid the Soviet Union. And so for Hitler, the fact that Churchill would aid the Soviet Union was mysterious. Why would this famous colonialist, this, this man who praised the British Empire, who despised communism, why would Churchill want to aid the Soviet Union in its hour of need? Um, uh, now, there were perfectly plausible reasons as to why Churchill made that decision, because he regarded the Nazi regime as the primary threat to Britain, uh, and that the only way to win the war was to ally with the Soviet Union, and that would be the commonsensical interpretation of his famous speech of June 1941. 
But for the Nazis, the fact that the British wanted an alliance with the Soviet Union and that the Soviet Union wanted an alliance with Britain, why would the communists want to ally with the imperialists? That made no sense. So none of this made any sense to common sense, but it made perfect sense in the context of a paranoid conspiracy theory that the Jews had established a connection between the Soviet Union and Britain. And Nazi propaganda made this point, Hitler and Goebbels made this point in their speeches and essays, that the reason that Britain and the Soviet Union had formed an alliance was because of the power of the Jews. Now, the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory uh, as an interpretation of the Second World War applied to the United States as well. Why would the United States not adopt the policy of America first? America first. America first. We should not be involved in Europe's problems. That's none of our affair. America first. That's what Charles Lindbergh said, Father Coughlin, the anti-Semites in the United States, the quote isolationists. This doesn't concern us, what's going on in Europe. America first. And Hitler asked why would the United States, which has no national interest whatsoever in what happens on the European continent, be interested in intervening in this war? This is a mystery as to why the United States would involve itself in this war. It's none of their business. But now we have an interpretation as to why the United States is intervening in this war. It's because Franklin Roosevelt is the President of the United States, is because Franklin Roosevelt doesn't believe in America first, because he is a traitor to American national interests, and because Franklin Roosevelt has been captured by the power of the Jewish lobby and his Jewish pals from New York, from New York City, the center of Jewish power. And that is why, in opposition to the national interests of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt is driving the United States into a war against Nazi Germany. And why Franklin Roosevelt and the United States are forming an alliance with the Soviet Union. So yet again, the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory of the Second World War demonstrates why these mysterious events that otherwise are completely inexplicable to anybody with an ounce of common sense, why would the United States bother itself with a war in Europe if it wasn't for the power of the Jews in New York who are sending non-Jewish boys to Europe to lose their limbs and lose their lives so that the Jews can win a war that they will benefit from and become very wealthy as a result of. And that's what the German government told the German people. And, um, uh, and they told it to them again and again. And the, um, the longer the war went on, um, <clears throat> the more the war came home in the form of the air war against Hamburg and Dresden and <clears throat> many other cities. When 600,000 German civilians died under uh, the bombs of the British and American air forces, um, when whole working class districts went up in flames and people in Hamburg uh, jumped into the, the canals of the city and died in the boiling water in a firestorm. Uh, horrific events. What Joseph Goebbels said, the propaganda minister, was that the Jews have done this to you. It's the Jews who are gaining revenge. You see, we were right. We said they would come and kill us all, and now they're doing it.
fertile ground to uh, plow there, isn't it? You notice that was, a, from my view, most likely a cultural Jew talking about uh, anti-Semitism, a professor. He's the very model of what, of course, the Germans were talking about, the intellectual elites. But these people were are not Jewish in the classic sense of faith in God. These are intellectuals who have been raised in the British intellectual tradition. So what Hitler and Goebbels were saying is, why is America entering the war? Well, that would be because of the Atlanticist intellectual tradition where the British had come in and put their Darwinist philosophy into our elite institutions, which, of course, there was a lot of immigration. A lot of Jews came to the United States. They were a lot of intellectuals, and they brought Bolshevism. So you had this kind of mix, and Bolshevism is a Darwinism. You had this mix of Darwinist scientific theory and Bolshevik political theory, and it was in the intellectual uh, academies, and we had a lot of Jewish people that were in those positions of power, and they got blamed for, uh, you know, this um, intervention by the United States into the European morass. And you notice the professor was making a big deal about America first because, of course, he's throwing shade on Trump, which just goes into where I want to end today. The tremendous amount of anti-Semitism that I'm seeing bubble up on the Internet, some of which is critique that is well-deserved because we got a lot of sellouts in all, all these groups. We got Arab sellouts. We got black sellouts. We got Jewish sellouts. We got Mexican sellouts. We got sellouts here, sellouts there, sellouts everywhere. And what did they sell out to? Materialism and narcissism with no care for the people. And when we allow anti-Semitism to come into the America First movement, we're giving the globalists a belt-high fastball with which they can discredit American nationalism. We've talked about nationalism has been associated with Nazism and fascism because the historical period, which just preceded the formation of the post-World War II Democrat liberal order, was dominated by totalitarian political systems, and they were mass murderers, and they were using the politics of division and hatred to control and to manipulate the people so that they could achieve their, their goals and aims. The same thing's going on here right now today. You know, as, a, as an American Jew, I am not hiding from the criticism, and in fact, I've been very vocal about this, that we have a lot of Jews that are cultural Jews, Jews in name only, who are Bolsheviks or materialists or scientists who are actually working for a post-religious technocratic world, a digitized world, and there's a lot of cultural Jews at the front end of this, both scientifically, uh, financially, politically, and they're doing this for a wide range of reasons, not the least of which is they're trying to save themselves. In their own mind, it's a strategy for survival. The fact that they're killing our country is of secondary concern or no concern because they're self-concerned, self-concerned. 
And I'm watching all this anti-Semitism. And I'm, I'm, I'm asking myself, do I even want to mention the names of these people? Because these people are just bad. They're just bad. They're bad. They're just bad. I mean, they're just, when I say they're bad, I don't mean they're necessarily bad as people. I mean, their thinking is bad. They haven't thought through what they're doing. Because what they're, what they're saying is with a broad brush, an entire group of people are genetically evil. They're blaming it on the Jews. And in fact, they go so far as to say the people that are Ashkenazi Jews are not really Israelites in the prophetic tradition, that they're really, you know, descended from a group called the Khazars, the Khazarian Empire, which is between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea in medieval Europe, that this group of people converted to Judaism, and that's who the modern Ashkenazi Jews are. That's their theory. And, uh, I, you know, I look around at the evidence. There's evidence on both sides. There's evidence that says that there is uh, an Indo-Turkic Khazarian root to Ashkenazi Jewish genetics and to the language. And there's another group of people that say, Boulder Dash, the genetic root is uh, in Israel and Yiddish has got nothing to do with any Turkic languages or any Ger German languages. It's really, uh, you know, d derived out of Hebrew. So we've got these two groups, and they're, they're battling it out. They're battling it out because for some reason somebody wants to say that the Jews are not really Jewish. They're really the devil. Well, I grew up in that tradition. I grew up there. Okay, so let me just tell. I'm not even going to mention your name because you're an asshole, and I thought about it for two days because you're actually from Minnesota. And I was thinking to myself, do I want to mention your name and draw attention to you? Because you're really irrelevant. You're really irrelevant, and you're on this thing about the Jews every time you tweet. I'm not mentioning your name because you're an intellectual midget. Because what you're saying is, is that a whole group of people are in charge of everything that's bad in the world. That the Jews are the cause of all this problem that we're facing. Well, where's the Saudi uh, conspiracy, the Turkish conspiracy, the Chinese conspiracy, the globalist conspiracy? You mean the Jews are running all these groups? Wow. If that's the case, I missed my ticket to get on the train of the International Zionist Conspiracy. It sounds like a great job because I'm not in on it. You know, I grew up with Ashkenazi Jews. I grew up there. I want to say this to all of you. These people were not materialists. They did not chase after money. They prayed always with all prayer. They were concerned with the relationship between themselves and God, between man and God. That's all they thought about. That's all they did. I was raised there. We were praying constantly all the time. Now, did these people miss Christ? Yes, they did. Did I miss Christ? No, I didn't. I did not because I had the revelation of Jesus Christ in my own life. And I'm just going to say to these anti-Semites that are saying that the Jews are against Christ, hey, you know, <clears throat> how long is 2,000 years in God's speed? What is God's speed? What is man's speed? Why are we of so little faith? Those of us who profess to be Christians yet want to broad brush the Jews is not even being Jewish.
What kind of goofy thinking is this? Do we not all believe in God? Do we not have faith in God? And if we have faith in God, why are we taking it into our own hands? Why are we not concerned with the log in our own eye before we start picking out the cinder in someone else's eye? Why are we judging when we're told, judge not lest you be judged? You know, our institutions are corrupt. Judaism's corrupt. The Catholic Church is corrupt. The Justice Department is corrupt. Why are these places corrupt? Why are our law schools corrupt? Why are our universities corrupted? Why? Because every place there is the search for truth. Evil will attack. Why would evil waste its time on people that are uh, do not doing anything? I mean, if you want to make sure that you don't get any feedback about truth, just sit around and watch reruns of, uh, you know, uh, the Three Stooges. Or, you know, that's too good. You might get the you might get an evil if you watch the Three Stooges because there's truth there. I mean, if you're just going to sit around and watch reels all day long, shorts all day long, hey, nobody's going to mess. You're not going to get any good. You're not going to get any bad. You're lukewarm. And it says in Scripture, God will spit you out because you're lukewarm. You're not making a statement. If you pursue truth, I have pursued truth, and I will make an admission. I have been pursued by evil, and I have been taken off my path by it more than a time or two. I'm working on myself. So in the in the perspective of the Jews, what the Jews are, let's play this piece by Noam Chomsky, because he's somewhere like, he, this is a great liberal, great thinker, revered. Let's listen to what he says about this Kazarian myth, because it summarizes this quite adequately. Are you familiar with the Kazar theory? There's a theory, it's widely accepted as anti-Semitic, that, that, that Ashkenazi Jews come from the Khazars and they don't, they're not Levantine, but it's, DNA it's, tests... It's not anti-Semitic, it's a question of fact. So... Uh, Shlomo San, for example, has argued that, I think probably exaggerated, but it's simply a question of fact. If my ancestors from the Ukraine have Khazar uh, roots, changes nothing. I'm Jewish, my grandfather was Jewish. Uh, uh, he, my family happens to have a uh, story saying that we're descended from the Baal Shem Tov. Okay, that's part of the yeah. culture. Doesn't matter what the that's DNA good. shows. That's good. So what he's saying is, A, he's a believer. The tradition has been transmitted from father to son. It doesn't make a difference. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Let's get away from this Darwinist, materialist, genetic orientation. Let's get into the spiritual world. Let's judge people by the content of their character, not by their genetic predispositions. Let us get away from division, because in dividing us, the business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy flourishes. Let's come together. If we're going to have America first, we have to have an America for all American citizens. Let us not blame others when we're not delegates. You know, if you're an anti-Semite and you're not a delegate, 
you're an asshole. Okay, there you have it. So all you anti-Semites, if you'd like to continue to be, at least go get involved in the political process. Don't sit on the couch throwing bricks at people when you're not doing anything because you're not contributing to the healing of America. Let's heal the country. We had it going in the late 70s and 80s. I was there. We had three great icons of masculinity. Ali, James Brown, Richard Pryor. They brought our country together. They brought white and black together. Let us bring man and woman together. Black, brown, white, together. Whatever that means, we're Americans. We're Americans. We have a spiritual tradition. We're not ethno-nationalists like the Chinese or the Israelis or the Russians. We are a diverse nation brought together, one nation under God, one nation under God. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And on that note, I want to wish you a great week. Thank you for joining. Go to the store. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to seeing you Thursday night. Be well. Father of soul, soul brother number one, James Brown!